0: Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca, or wherever they post podcasts. I don't know where they post those things.
1: Uh, well, it's on iTunes and Spotify all and right. all yeah. the other one-fun okay, places,
0: fine. Dave. fine, fine. Okay. We're, uh, we're here with Lauren Latour again, uh, from the beginning this time, excellently. And uh, Stefan Hostetter is sitting in my bedroom. That is true. And uh, we shall begin. So prisoners, uh, garment workers, slaughterhouse workers, and commoners across the globe are uh, being sacrificed to COVID-19. As many prisons and factories are maintaining their status quo without adjusting for the pandemic. And many governments are doing little for regular people leaving millions to die from the virus simply because they are on the wrong end of systematically oppressive systems. In other words, you might be eating or wearing something right now that was prepared by someone who is, in many ways, indistinguishable from a slave. In addition, the United States keeps talking about lifting lockdown measures to save its economy, even though this will probably hurt their economy worse in the long run by strengthening the spread of the coronavirus. Brazil, meanwhile, continues to keep businesses like beauty salons open, even as their COVID numbers keep getting worse, because the country is being run by a murderous imbecile. The next COVID relief effort being discussed in the U.S. would extend unemployment benefits into 2021, since the U.S. has reached unemployment numbers that rival the Great Depression, but it would also allow for massive giveaways to failing fossil fuel corporations, a sector which has already taken full advantage of the pandemic. See, for instance, the growing list uh, that was last updated on the 11th of May by Amy Westervelt and Emily Gertz for Drilled News, in which they present in hideous detail the efforts of the fossil fuel industry and its allies in the Trump administration to use the pandemic to milk the government for more oil and gas subsidies. The list is extensive and includes the mass rollbacks of unbiased science, uh, environmental protections, reporting, monitoring, efficiency standards, pipeline safety rules, and renewable energy mandates, as well as large coal mining and other mining and drilling expansions, huge government bailouts for failing fossil fuel businesses and the potential legalization of dumping nuclear waste in regular municipal landfills. The article also lists efforts in various U.S. states to further empower the industry that is fast-tracking our planetary doom, as well as similar efforts in South Africa, Australia, the EU, and Canada. We've talked about the latter on the show before, but I'll highlight one of them here namely that the Alberta Energy Regulator will be starved of $113 million as a result of the province no longer collecting administrative fees from industry, which will undermine the very agency that is supposed to oversee environmental compliance by the fossil fuel industry in the province. Such rollbacks are happening across the world. So it's good to know that as we all shelter in our homes, dreaming of the idea of wildlife returning to urban areas, Since we stopped overrunning them with our vehicles, industry is hard at work, turning the planet into a hellscape. In pipeline news, Canada will be loaning up to $500 million uh, to Coastal GasLink to build its pipeline through unceded Wet'suwet'en territory. As you might remember, this was the project that almost ground our economy to a halt in the winter, as First Nations solidarity protests sprung up across the country and blocked vital rail lines for weeks on end. Now, the talks that emerged that emerged from those protests, and which could have held promise for the beginning of the end of Canadian colonial blindness, have fallen apart again, as Witsuetin leaders are accusing government officials of trying to rush the preliminary agreement through before all relevant Witsuetin members, including the elected officials and their constituents, have had time to review the document. And to end this segment on some positive news, the Grassy Narrows First Nation has finally been granted adequate funding for the Mercury Treatment Center that will help the community members who have been poisoned by the mercury uh, that was dumped into their river 50 years ago. And last month, Alberta's highest court admonished the Alberta Energy Regulator and reversed their approval of a $440 million tar sands mine because it encroached on native land and back in march the u.s army corps of engineers was forced by a federal judge to do a new environmental review of the dakota access pipeline which was the project that sparked the standing rock standoff that saw private security guards attack people with dogs pepper spray and water cannons in freezing temperatures back in 2017
1: thanks dave um so my thought after that uh that that piece, especially the the early parts, that started so sad, and honestly, in part, just because during this whole pandemic, I felt like I just need some pick me ups. Was that we could finish this first opening segment off with just like just a, some a little bit of hope. Uh, so so Lauren, if I can go to you first, uh, what is something that's giving you hope?
2: Yeah. Um. So something I can I can draw on quickly was a uh, there's an Eco's poll uh, put out recently that cited something like. Seventy-one or seventy-three percent of Canadians who um, who want and are advocating for broad social change coming out of COVID, um, as opposed to the idea of sort of a return to normalcy that that we've continued to hear politicians cite um, that that coming out of COVID, what what we need to work hardest on is is a return to normal, um, and that. Uh, that's a, that's a significant number of Canadians polled. Um, from what I understand, this poll had something like 5,000 people, uh, which is a, a reasonably large number when you're conducting research. And 73% of those people wanted something more than just a return to normal. And and I think what I find most hopeful about this is that um, it is sort of general public. Uh, this is sort of a phenomena and a mood and a vibe that I had seen a lot on, on my social media, on my Twitter, on my Instagram. Um, but I had sort of assumed that because I kept seeing it on social media, it kind of was just like my angry Twitter bubble or my angry Instagram bubble. And to realize that no, these are sentiments that people all across uh, the nation, if not the world are feeling, was very cool. Um, and yeah, it did give me a little bit of hope in in an otherwise quite, quite, quite bummer of an era. Um, <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so my piece of hope uh, is also very small uh but it it feels like something and i'm holding on to it. it especially after you know once biden secured the nomination i became less invested i would say in the american election because the the stakes of winning were no longer like still still definitely need to defeat trump don't get me wrong that would be very very bad but like winning suddenly was it was it winning with biden versus sanders or warren or really any of the other progressive candidates is just a different type of winning. It's, it, it feels maybe, to go back to yours, more of a return to, quote, normalcy, which is basically what Biden is banking his entire campaign on. Um, but my one p- small piece of hope is that I think th- is that they is that they do seem to understand that it cannot just be a return to whatever Biden thinks, but actually a return to what maybe the the where the, the left, if you even can call it that in the States, is now. Um, which is that it's allowed that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has agreed to co-chair the Climate Change Unity Task Force, which is being put together between Biden, with Biden and Sanders as a way to sort of come up with what the policies they'll be running on. And, and that at least feels a little bit hopeful, you know, um, may, a, partially because AOC has been pretty good at, at, at calling out the, the BS that that sort of, and not going along with the party line when, when it has. So I, it makes me feel a little bit better about that. And and it means that maybe, you know, we'll get some some real policy in place. You know, the the Biden campaign has come out recently saying that he's envisioning a, a big spending kind of presidency, that, that that's sort of like he's, he's like the, looking at a New Deal type presidency, uh, which, again, who knows what that means? but but, I do think that the combination of that with people like AOC leading a climate change agenda is the closest to excited I can be about a Biden presidency, which is still like barely excited. But it's at least not like depressed, which is where I was previously,
2: yeah. yeah. The fact alone of that task force kind of existing. it's it's only something that sort of came on my radar in the last few days. i I don't actually know when the announcement was made. But the fact that that task force exists in the first place, and like bef- before we find out it's been it's being chaired by AOC is really exciting because um although yeah i'm i'm not very excited about biden oh i'm not excited about biden at all um i do have faith that bernie and his team and his staff will sort of make sure like that that sort of ship is being steered properly and being steered towards the future that we're excited about and and the kind of legislation and the kind of moves that we could be excited about so um yeah piling on to your hopeful moment as well
0: emotionless overhead this verse sentimental as the heavenly firmament as i rehearse over this instrumental sexy as the fundament i get a text from the government Play a role in the system and vote. Stay socially distant, stay woke. Uh, Turning to the relationship between COVID and climate change. Uh, We can accept that pollution levels have dropped around the world as a result of lockdown orders, with estimates of global carbon emissions potentially dropping by as much as 5 to 8% on the year. This is a significant drop, but it might seem odd that there's still so much air pollution, even though no one's traveling. The same amount of electricity is, of course, still being generated by fossil fuels, and as Shannon Osaka reminds us for Grist, quote, uh, Emissions need to be cut by 7.6% every year to keep global warming from surpassing 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the threshold associated with the most dangerous climate threats according to an analysis by the UNEP. Even if the global lockdown and economic slump reduce emissions by 7.6% this year, emissions would have to fall even more uh, the year after that and the year after that, and so on. Uh, So the earth is also obviously still warming, and this temporary dip is likely to be compensated for, assuming we eventually go back to the way we did things before. Speaking of going back to the way thing we did things before, George Monbiot recently made a comparison between the current crisis and the 2008 financial crash in that after the mortgage crisis 12 years ago, we simply poured everyone's money into propping up the very systems that caused the crash rather than fixing the root problem. In 2020, it's very possible we'll make a similar mistake and pour our money into saving the pollution economy that is driving our planet towards a barren nightmare, rather than letting obsolete systems die and building something more just and sustainable, or at least something that has even a small chance of carrying human society into the 22nd century. Monbiot writes, quote, let's have what many people were calling for long before this disaster hit, a Green New Deal. But let's stop describing it as a stimulus package. We have stimulated consumption too much over the past century, which is why we face environmental disaster. Let us call it a survival package, whose purpose is to provide incomes, distribute wealth, and avoid catastrophe, without stoking perpetual economic growth. Dan Gurino for Inside Climate News gives us the example of Germany which is probably going to meet its improbable emissions reduction target for this year as a result of the virus, which development is already being used by their Chamber of Industry and Commerce to delay the implementation of their carbon tax. Guarino quotes energy expert uh, Christoph Podwills as, as saying, quote, "...this emissions drop is not per se good news for climate protection. On the one hand, emissions will rise again after the crisis," And on the other hand, a slowdown of investments relevant for climate protection is likely. Uh, for example, in renewable energies, building refurbishment, and/or for industry. As pointed out by Amy Harder for Axios, uh, entities like the UN, the International Monetary Fund, and a whole bunch of investors and corporate executives are also calling for major investments in renewables. And yet, environmentalist politicians like Jeff Merkley in the U.S. are on the defensive. And many environmentalists are feeling the same way because it may seem wrong to be talking about climate change in the midst of a pandemic. One problem that Harder highlights uh, is that the things that will bring long term carbon reductions and green jobs, like investing in storage, renewables, and carbon capture, are not going to create a lot of jobs immediately. People in Washington, meanwhile, are currently talking about simply trading off priorities, like buying excess oil for their strategic reserves while also reauthorizing renewable energy uh, tax credits. And finally, we'll look at an article from Kate Marvel, published in April, called I Am a Mad Scientist, in which she vents about how COVID has been seen as a boon for the planet. Her argument is that there is no silver lining in COVID for the planet, since this momentary drop is minuscule when weighed against all the emissions over the past 150 years. She also argues that politicians have created this status quo, having put their careers ahead of the lives of their citizens, that scientists themselves have been afraid to speak out for fear of losing funding or having fewer publication opportunities, and that, quote, we were never going to be able to sacrifice our way out of climate change, especially not on the backs of the people who have historically done most of the sacrificing. There is an entrenched system that extracts CO2 from the ground and pumps it into the atmosphere, one that results not from inherent human badness, but from the choices of a few humans with power. Confronting that system will take work. We need to build things, wind turbines, solar panels, public transportation, denser cities, fairer societies. We don't need purification. We don't need absolution. We need to get to work." Of course, she's implying that we don't need to think about degrowth, which we do, but her point about focusing on systemic pollution and injustice is well taken.
1: Yeah, it's funny. This conversation, uh, it, along with the word amid, which has been used throughout this, this whole uh, endeavor, the other word I've heard a fair amount is, the, or a combo word, is shovel-ready. The amount of times I've heard the words shovel ready in response to how we need to respond to this, this climate change or specifically how we need to respond to COVID in a standpoint of what will get funded from this is astronomical. And, and I think the point in here about the fact that it's actually kind of difficult to find, quote unquote, shovel ready initiatives that will be good for the climate will be a, a difficulty for for us. Um, because it will take some time to build this. And because other things like transit planning take forever. You know, like if you wanted to have shovel reddit transit planning, you should have built the stuff we agreed to 15 years ago. Uh, and let's forget about the fact that how much more difficult it is to actually manage a... Uh, municipal transit given that's like right now the federal government's basically refusing to give any money to municipal transit because they're saying that's the province's job and like you know i'm not holding out hope that doug ford is going to come in to save the TTC. that is not not a reasonable wish uh but throwing to you lauren
2: yeah no um i totally hear uh the point that it is difficult to find shovel ready uh, like quote unquote green initiatives for us to immediately sort of put people to work doing. But, but I think that's sort of why, um, I get sort of annoyed when, when, not when people make that argument, but, but when people say that like, Oh, green energy can't provide enough work. There aren't enough shovel ready jobs in green energy because it, it isn't necessarily just about green energy. It's like, yes, it's the idea that, that green initiatives, as we sort of define them won't necessarily provide enough work. For instance, we understand that like you put up a solar panel, it's kind of set it and forget it besides like odd maintenance. But, but the sort of system change we need in the sort of work that we need investment in from our governments. It's like, yes, it's green energy, but it's like green energy plus ecosystem rehabilitation and restoration plus low carbon jobs in, in care work and in education and in transportation plus work in, in green infrastructure and public and private retrofits um, like plus, 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 plus. So like it's the idea that like there is more than one kind of low carbon job and those low carbon jobs, can't be limited to just sort of green infrastructure or green energy. Um, thinking specifically in terms of like work that isn't necessarily like shovel ready in the construction sense, but in this, in the sense that like, these are jobs we can put people into right away. In in my mind, at least I'm sure somebody could correct me if I'm wrong, but like in those jobs around ecosystem rehabilitation, and and those jobs in care work, and actually ones that I'm not even thinking of right now, but the, but the Canadian government is actually investing in is in like, um, is in is in orphan well uh, re- rehabilitation isn't the right word. But um, it's it's something we talked about a few weeks ago. Is that there has been so much damage that has been done to the physical environment in the last few decades, specifically as it pertains to the oil and gas industry, that there's a whole lot of work we could find in restoring those ecosystems and in restoring those habitats. Um, and like that's the kind of work that people were put to um, in in the 30s as a result of like in order to like lift people out of the depression. It was in it was in that ecosystem restoration work. Um, that needed to happen even then, even a hundred years ago or, or ninety years ago. So so yeah. There isn't maybe an abundance of shovel ready work as it pertains to specifically green energy, but there still is low carbon work in right. abundance that we can funnel people towards.
1: Actually what interestingly, the thought you just brought up was retrofits. Man, like if if the if the government could just put like significant amount of money to building retrofits like that's that's a considered one of the major things that you need to actually figure out right now is a time when we actually have a lot of buildings that are like we expect buildings to be sort of empty for a bit so not a bad time to actually do retrofits um and 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 that is actually perhaps the biggest like because to me i always come back to this question of like for all of the concepts of green and, and and yada yada if there's, a, there's still a primacy for me of like, is it actually decreasing the amount of oil or, car, or, or fossil that need to be pulled out of the ground? Like for every other thing that is not doing directly that, you know, like, like planting more trees is great, but like they will also then die and we release that carbon. Ensuring that you do not need to pull out more natural gas or oil from the ground to not heat more housing is, is totally different. Um, and so, man, like the agreed retrofits would be huge.
2: Well, yeah. And, and specifically not to get too sort of like weedsy or nerdy, but like the idea, I'm sure a lot of listeners are are familiar with it, but the idea of like a deep retrofit, which, which doesn't specifically have one definition from what I understand. It's like, basically it's like, you need to be overhauling like 50% of the building kind of thing. But it's the idea that you're like, you're, you're looking at a building holistically and retrofitting the entire thing in order to make it more carbon neutral or, or, uh, passive or, or, or whatever sort of standard you want to hold it to. But these idea of deep retrofits and that most buildings older than 10 years are in need of a deep retrofit. Um, whether that be like bolstering them with like a bunch of insulation or doing their HVAC system or whatever. Um, anyway, anyway, we could talk about retrofits all day. I would also need to do, to do far more research about it. The other point I wanted to specifically pull out from what David was referencing was in that Monbiot piece. Um, and the idea of no longer calling them stimulus packages, but referring to them as survival packages, I thought is, is a really interesting, he always has the most interesting, like phrasing and syntax. Um, but like, is potentially an interesting spin because it could be maybe a way of getting conservative voters to see the package as something other than like reckless spending and something other than just like liberals going crazy with money because it's the idea that like no we do need these things to survive not only covid but but in the decades and and centuries to come um especially because like, I am already starting to hear like liberals and centrists starting to worry about, about sort of the deficit, um, and worry that like, I I think I know I specifically heard somebody say they're like, oh, well like the government can't just like print money in order to get us out of this problem. And it's like, I don't know. (laughs) I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. I'm not an economist. I didn't even do very well studying, (laughs) studying like macro econ in, in university, but like Our dollar is no longer tied to the gold standard. When you start talking about billions and trillions of dollars, you're talking about theoretical money that doesn't exist. And frankly, the fact that we would value theoretical dollars over actual lives and actual livelihood and well-being, and like, not just referring to human lives here, like non-human lives as well, but the fact that we would value theoretical dollars over, over lives is bananas to me. And, and I'm, and I'm hoping that maybe, maybe if we were to start calling the survival package, people would start to take that sort of like life and death reality a little more seriously and understand that, yeah, this isn't just like liberals spending your money because like they want a free ride. It's, it's people spending your money because if to, to do anything less is the death sentence.
1: Yeah. Uh, what's funny. That's actually also what I wanted to pull out from the Monbiot piece, um, uh, which was actually, but slightly differently, which was if it would allow us to reframe success of the package, you know, like because like if, like stimulus is one thing, but rec- even recovery implies that we almost have to get back implies a, a set of KPI, a set of key performance indicators that imply that, that, that like the success would be returning the GDP to a certain percentage or something, right? Whereas, if you actually could change the narrative and call it a survival package, perhaps what that does is actually change the focus of uh, focus from "Will we get our economy back on track?" quote unquote, to "Will we get the well-being of our citizens back on track?" and and I think that that shift actually lets you maybe never get to the to the GDP that we previously had while still actually getting the the human gains that that truly matter um you know like if the fact it is not it's no coincidence that the only time we've seen a reduction in gd in 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 co2 over the past at least 20 years has been during now the two recessions and so i i do think why decoupling is important and everything else like that i do think that there's another interesting piece about that reframing is that it might actually let success look different like if success doesn't look return look, look like returning to that kind of thing
2: you heard it here, folks. We are ditching previous language, and we are whole hog with the survival package. Yeah, terminology from here on out. Yeah. Tell your comms, folks.
1: Um, yeah, and uh, the, the last thought I, point I had before we go to break was just that I, I I I do I do think that the question we're really faced with here is is will we be brave enough to find the money? You know, like that's that's the question. Like, will we decide that whatever amount of money we're currently using is enough money uh, like, like, will we just spend that, that we need to, to get there? Like if we keep, if we keep limiting ourselves, you know, if we really need to see an 8% reduction again in 2021, after this, the only way to do that is to spend a bunch of money right now. And you know, that's prioritizing survival over stimulus.
2: Uh, uh,
0: And you are still listening to The Green Majority on CIUT-FM or on one of our much-appreciated radio syndicate partners or on The Green Majority podcast. And we're now going to move to a story provided to us by Christopher Moray, one of our contributors, about airlines. With closed borders and stay-at-home orders being put in place to varying degrees across the world... International flights have dropped by over 90%, with some airlines, like Virgin Australia, grounding their entire international fleet. As profits evaporate, many airlines have seen their stock prices drop uh, by over more than 50% since lockdown orders were issued back in March. Airline companies are therefore clamoring for bailouts, which have largely been granted. In the United States, Congress approved up to $25 billion in grants and loans to go, to, to go toward payroll funds, 75% of which will likely go to the four biggest airlines American, Delta, United, and Southwest. Plus, they promised up to $35 billion in additional funding, which will probably not be spent on the workers who actually need it. In Europe, Air France KLM is receiving 7 billion euros, courtesy of the French and Dutch governments. The Australian government is also waiving $715 million in fees and industry levies for its own national airlines. The short-term measures, however, may not be able to save companies whose futures remain uncertain. On May 2nd, billionaire investor Warren Buffett divested all of Berkshire Hathaway's holdings in the airline industry, amounting to over $4 billion, which represented close to a 10% stake in each of the four big U.S. airlines. While industry media remains, of course, optimistic, speculation as to the future of air travel in the age of pandemics varies widely. Some believe that airfares will go down to help fill the seats. Others predict a skyrocketing of airfares, as fewer passengers are allowed to travel per plane, While some are optimistic that demand for travel will explode, having been pent up during the lockdowns, and some argue that people will continue saving their money, and so won't want to travel very much. This stuff, of course, is an example of the strange psychobabbling twists and turns of predictions about the human mind and heart that economists often wantonly engage in. Uh, But moving on, there is also, of course, the matter of the short-term boon for the environment, which we threw some thorough shade at earlier in the show, as forecasters are predicting a 38% drop in air traffic emissions for 2020, while cities around the globe have reported better air quality and more visible stars since lockdowns began. Now, the reductions in emissions obviously have come at a tragically high cost a prime example of how not to implement a degrowth strategy to mitigate climate collapse. As Kate Marvel said in the article we mentioned before, quote, the current situation, death, poverty, and loneliness, is an ineffective blueprint for climate solutions. Also, quote, if the air quality is better now, if fewer people die from breathing in pollution, this is not a welcome development so much as an indictment of the way things were before. And Chris concludes by noting that new habits are being formed, not just telecommuting, but things like cooking at home, quitting smoking, and engaging in non-consumption-centered activities, like going for walks at the park or beach, which, if continued after the threat of the pandemic has passed, that and that's a big if, could have long-term benefits to both society and the environment.
1: Yeah. So this was interesting... In a couple of ways. A, because obviously the fact that flights and flying were so consistently such a, a sticky part of the carbon question. Uh, and I use sticky to sort of, in this case, mean the concept of like, you know some carbon is easy to undermine and, and, and remove from society you know like a, a retrofit means that the building requires less less heat and so that's less energy being built where uh, and and that can be done through electrification and in renewable energies whereas flights was actually one of the things that was almost impossible or at least so far we do not have any real good strategy to be able to reduce carbon from flights beyond flying less period that's the only the only real way Right now, there's not any useful, you know, like as you mentioned, in, I think a couple of previous episodes, you know, Richard uh, Branson has spent, you know, tried to spend billions of dollars trying to find a new way of doing this, and has so far come up empty uh, for commercial sort of flights. It's it's still a very hard question, and in and, and, and so the fact that we're now in a place where just flying is way less, I think, is 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 fascinating. Now, and I'm with, I think I'm with, uh, with the the people who think that f- we'll be see less flights in the future i don't think that's i don't think we're, i'm not out here to say that we're, people are not flying altogether but i do actively think that a lot of the question if there's going to be some real bounce back for us in regards to some of these habits might stick i do think it's going to be the telecommuting pieces and the hopefully fewer people asked to just drive in from the burbs of San Francisco for two hours to sit in a, in an office. You know, some of that commuting might hopefully be able to be undone uh, because people become more comfortable. The But all of that is to say that if we are going to be giving money to these to two flying companies which again I'm I'm generally not for. I, I don't think that like the amount of most fossil fuel subsidies in the west right now are basically to these fly, two airlines anyways to reduce their prices. So I'm not really stoked about this whole concept. But if so, you have to make sure you don't repeat the same mistake in 2008, and uh, and allow for people, or the or from the tax cuts that Trump did even even a couple of years ago, where you allow these companies to do all these stock buybacks, get let them let them make their 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 CEOs and their and their stockholders way more uh, way more rich, and then and then still two years later have no ability to to bounce back from a, from a from a difficulty like this that uh, like you have to prevent stock buybacks if you're giving them money uh, as a simplest ask yeah
0: they're like thanks for your money we pocketed it now we need more of it
1: yeah or else we're going to fire everyone again like it's a you know it's, it's a totally un- unhelpful stance um, and then lastly on the, the that one last piece on the Kate Marvel bit where she where she was quoted saying that death, poverty, and loneliness is an inefficient inefficient ineffective blueprint for climate solutions. Uh, I will just say that like this to me is perhaps the thing I will keep repeating most often, which is that, the way we've reduced emissions in this world right now is not the way that would be uh, allow them to stick. The way that would allow them to stick would be, uh, le- would be in communities and allowing people to be with their friends and family and enjoy themselves in that kind of low space. Uh, so that's the that's the one thing I will say. But let's go to the last conversation.
0: Well, I can imagine, Stefan, since you were begging for hopeful scenarios in the first section. Yes, I was. I will offer one now. Oh, that'd be great. I can imagine these... Uh, Suburban, uh, for lack of a better term, wastelands, uh, where people sort of have to m- move and commute to work and then return. They don't actually spend that much time in their neighborhoods themselves, driving everywhere. Perhaps living at home and working from home will cause uh, the neighborhoods of these of these suburban places to develop an, an actual uh, community vibe.
1: Uh, that that's fair. That would be great and would go a long way.
0: And you are still listening to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or an appreciated radio syndicate partner or on the Green Majority podcast. And uh, we are now going to turn to another story that Christopher Moray has uh, supplied us about Barrick Gold. So, the Toronto-based mining corporation, Barrick Gold, is in the news again due to yet another dispute over the Porgera gold mine in Papua New Guinea. At the end of April, Prime Minister James Marape announced that the mining lease for the joint Canadian and Chinese venture Barrack New Guinea Guinea Limited, or BNL, would not be renewed. Uh, Industry media sources have called it a government takeover, and Barrack CEO Mark Bristow said that it essentially meant that they were nationalizing the operation. These allegations were reinforced when, after BNL suspended its operations pending a lawsuit against the government, Marape threatened to seize the mine and even sent in troops to protect it from being shut down. Despite the Marape government being very pro-resource extraction, they took the move against BNL after landowners and local communities accused them of a litany of terrible things. The company has been accused of cyanide dumping, Illegal mining, labor violations, failure to resettle, tax evasion, and it has been implicated in generally heightened levels of violence in the region uh, since its arrival 30 years ago. In 2011, Human Rights Watch released a report detailing the brutal consequences of Barracks operations. Uh, from fi- these were officials being bribed and corrupted, uh, homes being burned and accusations of the company's private security forces committing gang rape and murder. Barrick Gold is, of course, a Canadian corporation, just over on Bay Street, and it has been doing stuff like this all over the world for years. All this stuff at Porgera follows a long history of disputes with, and allegations levied by, governments and local communities around the world. The company has dumped cyanide into rivers in Argentina, uh, bribed government officials in Tanzania, and even disrupted and dispossessed indigenous and local communities in the United States. As John Burton and Glenn Banks from Dev Policy Blog point out, replacing Barrack with another mining company or the government will not resolve the larger issues, as existing proxies like the Porgera Development Authority, they note, have not done well by Porgerans. It's not. It's even questionable whether mining operations in general can be made safe, environmentally sound, and respectful to indigenous peoples. Uh, given Prime Minister marape's intention to keep the mine running, therefore, a win against Barak does not necessarily mean a win for the people.
1: Yeah. So, a couple things here. Which the first main uh, takeaway. Of this, I think has to be how inherently colonial mining is, um, and and how much and how often it is these you know are there these companies that are based in uh, honestly most often Toronto. Toronto is actually the mining capital of the world when it comes to the number of mining companies that are based out of the TSX in the in 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 the city, um, but. But so often based in these sort of cities, and and their work is almost entirely international. and And because of that, or not entirely. obviously there's a whole bunch of mines going on in Canada. So don't mean to imply that. but uh, you know, a good percentage of it remains international. And because of that, there is this inherent uh, play, where where the where the where the company the mining company is sort of using is is backed by in some ways inherently sometimes directly by the state the the you know in this case Canada and and that allows them with fair amount of leeway and then they are once again are able to do these types of things that are you know that are truly horrendous to the to the places they're going to and so when we're thinking about this sort of shift or this larger conversation around what kind of growth you would need, say for a, for a green new deal, uh, which 100% requires certain types of rare earth mining and stuff like that. There has to be a conversation around how you put limits on these companies or more specifically the companies, the countries themselves that have them have to find ways to better regulate them from their own country like there has to be repercussions in canada for misaction other places because it becomes clear again and again and again that these companies do not care about the regulations that exist in the countries they're going to so someone else has to step up you know and i think this is actually quite similar to the ways that the states needs to figure out how to uh, you know actually start reeling in some of the really the, the, the very large tech companies or the very large companies that they have th- that are bringing money into the states from a standpoint of you know there has to be repercussions in in the United States you have to find a way to make sure that they can that they are hurt where you can control the the regulations for misdeeds other places uh, because if you fail to do that you're allowing for this ongoing ongoing um Corrupt action, and and you know and and you're profiting off of it. That's the other thing, of course, is that like you know this is their, this is money leaving these poor nations and coming into 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 Canada. And you know you you don't get to pretend that you're the nice Canada face to the world when you have your companies like this going around and and doing truly atrocious things in country to country to country. Like the what mining companies are doing all across the the globe. Has to be addressed by the countries that are housing those mining companies, or else they're just willfully profiting off of uh, dramatic injustice, which you know they are currently, and I and I and they are, I, but like that has to be a part of the dialogue, I guess, if we're talking about what else can be done, uh, or what a better future looks like.
0: Yeah, I mean, people who uh, don't accept uh, this kind of discourse often say things like, "Oh, colonialism." What are you talking about colonialism for? It's no longer the 1800s, but clearly, uh, these mining operations show that these are these are colonies. We we send in the companies, and they uh, they they bring the they bring the the goods back to the homeland.
1: Well, yeah, well, or or man, like let's not even get into the the weirdness that is these sort of weird free trade. Uh, zones that they that they that be, they are set up in some of these other countries that is basically like hey you all of the rules that would normally exist don't exist there we're just going to hire you as cheap labor for for whatever we feel like like there's like mm. like it's it, like it, they've said these, these types of things exist all over the place in in many different ways. All right. Well, I I, I, honestly, after beginning the whole show saying that I was hoping to end this, uh, hoping this beginning more positively, I really ended on a downer note. But, uh, but thanks for listening, everyone, Uh, and then we'll see you next week.
0: Gotta hit those low notes.